Welcome, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin and the Investment News Podcast. I'm here uh, with my colleague and co-host, Bruce Kelly. Holy smokes. Is that Jeff Benjamin I hear? It, it is. It is Jeff Benjamin. I can't uh, believe it. We're back on a podcast together, man. Yeah, we were uh, we were separated for a few weeks of uh, vacations and stuff like that. We were like ships in the night. We kept yes. missing each other. But we're back. We're back. I was very for... depressed, Jeff, about the whole thing. Well, this will make you feel better, Bruce, because this is going to be a warm and comfortable. Uh, this is we're recording this as our this is our our first episode of the new yes. year. You know, we are recording. And happy New Year, Professor Benjamin. Happy New Year, Bruce. We are recording this in late December, so we don't want to let anyone. We're trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Our first guest for this uh, 2022 year starter is none other than Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Double Line Capital, a $137 billion asset management firm located out there on the left coast. Uh, we're told we can call uh, Mr. Sherman Jeff. Um, by my count, that gives us two Jeffs. And between the three of us, we have six first names. So we're hoping our audience can keep up. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And uh, I guess Sherman is also a first name as well. So you can lump me in the mix as well. So I guess that's how yeah. we got to six, right? Yes. All of us have it, right? So yeah, that's right. Uh, I probably go more colloquially by Sherman than anything else, just because Jeff is so common, as you're well aware, Mr. Benjamin. <laughs> yes. Yes. In relation I, uh, to General Sherman. No, but I do have a portrait of him on my wall. Um, I, I found a, a nice one and uh, it's sitting, it, it's hanging on my wall here in my office. And so uh, <laughs> it's a shout out to, re to remind me that uh, there is some lineage there somewhere. Uh, he's not a handsome dude. So I assume no, we, he's we're not. related. I, I assume we're related then. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in another episode, the, uh, the long and storied history of, of Jeffrey Sherman. Uh, so for starters, uh, we're going to look ahead to, to, to the year ahead. Uh, Jeff, I know that uh, you have some deep and, uh, and, in, and very insightful thoughts on, on pretty much all things. I've interviewed you before. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, let's, I want to kick off with inflation. This is something that uh, has, has been this kind of burr under the saddle. It's, it's transitory. It's not transitory. It's somewhat transitory we've had people um, on jeff who say well like one week we have someone on who says it's transitory and then the next week or a couple of weeks later someone will say the exact opposite right i mean we've right had well we've even had the fair chairman say well I, I don't think you guys understand the definition of transitory and it reminds me of that <laughs> quote from the princess bride like i, I don't think he, you know you're using that word or you understand the meaning of that word I, i'm butchering that quote too but uh, I don't think that word means what you think it means. I think it's the quote from the movie. But, um, you know, I, I think the Fed chairman even said, well, at some point, you know, what does transitory mean? And it, it's kind of like the, you know, back in old President Clinton day, what is, is. And, you know, um, what was it even Justice Scalia, you know, who is, you know, all about the written word came out and said, words don't matter. It's kind of, you know, so I, I think it's, um, you know, do as, uh, do as I say, not as I said or not as I do. And so ultimately, I think we've, we've had some um, ambiguity because, you know, it didn't play out according to the forecast. I think I think the Fed wanted it to be transitory, but it's hard when we've been talking about it the entire year of 2021. And I think it's going to be a big story for 2022. 
Mm-hmm. Well, talk, put some hard numbers on that though. I mean, where we are, where are we right now? Around 6% or something like that at the end of the Yeah, December? well, the, the latest CPI print, and, and this is what we call headline inflation. So it includes everything in the basket. And um, so that, that number was 6.8% year over year. Mm-hmm. So that's the most recent reading is 6.8%. And to put that in context of uh, where that sits, you know, we haven't seen that inflation inflation with a six handle, a 6.8% number year over year since, uh, or really in the last 30 plus years. And if you then go out there and take the other side of inflation, and this is stripping out the volatile piece of commodities. Remember, this is where, you know, the Fed and the economists say, well, commodities are volatile. And really, you know, you don't use any, right, Jeff? You know, you or Bruce, you guys, right. you guys don't use any commodities, right? I'm sitting Never. here, it's cold in the rain, you know, I'm having a cup of coffee. Uh, good thing I don't use any of those, right? But if you actually strip out the, the volatile components, um, you know, the, the commodity equation, what you see that that one's running at like 4.9%. So, so we'll, we'll call it five, right? And that number, once you strip out commodities, is actually the highest reading uh, really going back since the early 80s. So you have a 30-year high in inflation if you take the headline numbers, which is what we all consume. Um, it's a, if you strip out the commodity side, which is food and energy only, then it goes down to a 40-year high. So ultimately, there's a reason everyone's talking about inflation because some people who are in the investment business haven't seen these numbers in their entire lifetime, right? So it is right. a hot topic. So I think you know me telling you about the history is not why you, you had me on the on the podcast today. But when we look at the inflation print too, if you look at the year-over-year number, one thing that's pretty curious about it is that if you look at the number from 12 months ago, the month over month number, so the number that will roll off the data series when you get the next you know, 12 month print or the year over year print, that was 24 basis points was the month over month growth in CPI uh, when, when you look back uh, 12 months ago. And so what that means, when that number rolls off, we get the new print for, for the uh, December. And when December of 2021 month over month comes in next month, if that number is, let's say, 40 basis points or so, which is, by the way, where we've been running, we've been running to about, you know, a half a percent to 70 or 80 basis points per month. If it's more than 40, you're going to see a 7% inflation rate in 2021. Mm-hmm. And here we have, you know, the 10-year the struggling to make it to 150 in yield today, right? I mean, it kissed 150 this morning as we're recording, um, and it's been stuck in this range. And so, what does that tell you? It tells you that either we are very, very repressed in interest rates, or the inflation is transitory, or uh, another uh, interpretation can be that ultimately it, it, the inflation is going to be there. It's going to make the Fed aggressive, and they're going to choke this thing off by hiking rates and slowing growth significantly. So you can have all of those interpretations um, out there. Um, you can you can throw in the catalyst of foreign buying. You could talk about pension plans being you know almost fully funded now, and you can find out that there has been a demand for the treasury market. But ultimately, either treasuries are very grossly overvalued um, if inflation stays anywhere near these these realms, and we think it subsides next year. We, we don't think that you know you're, you're going to continue to see a seven percent number, and I, I can get in the details of why that in a minute. But ultimately. You know, the, the bond market, the rates market looks grossly overpriced. 
unless that one little piece I said of one of those ores comes to fruition, where ultimately the Fed gets way too aggressive, hikes very quickly, and chokes this entire economy off, which I don't really see as being a base case. And the reason I don't see that is that the Fed has worked so hard with you know, the QE programs, with you know, keeping rates where they are, keeping QE in the capacity it had been. And you know, even the chairman says we need to have a long cycle again. So I think the Fed is flexible. I think Chairman Powell did one of the better jobs that that he has done at the press conference back in December, where he's trying to thread the needle. He's trying to get out of bond buying a little bit quicker than than he had previously prognosticated about. And, you know, he's trying to say, well, we're not going to hike yet. But look, inflation is out there. And so, um, you know, I think all of us can agree that. Okay, it's one thing for us to say that inflation was transferred. We got it. Let's, let's just call it seven percent for 2021. But guess what? You know, prices aren't going to go down seven percent next year. Uh, it's very unlikely. Let's say right. And so, if that's the case, even if we get this, you know, low inflation going forward, we've already hit a new price reset. So the cost of everything went up. And so, I think that's what you're seeing with wages. You're seeing more wage growth in there. But let me pause right there and see if you have any questions yeah. about that. Well, I, I could talk to, a little bit deeper about how we're thinking about inflation. Yeah, I, I wanted you mentioned Powell a couple of times. I want to I want to ask you about what you see in in terms of rates because this is obviously related. Do, I mean, do you see rate a rate hike early in twenty twenty two? Do you see the three that they're talking about? I mean, how do they pull this off? Because this is their the their defense, right? Yeah, no, right. And so you know they're. See, I think it's interesting where people say, well, the Fed's telling you three. And this is where the dot plots have really gotten them in trouble, right? Bernanke hated them after they came out that, you know, and mm-hmm. they've all they've done is try to explain them every every press conference since then. And what I mean by that is that the three that you uh, the three rate hikes you referred to is the median of all of the Fed governors surveyed that go into the statement of economic projections. So um, we, we talk about that. But if you look at the dispersion around there, it's quite wide. There's some people with one. Uh, there's a few out there with two. The, the bulk of them are at three hikes, and there's some that even think there should be more. So uh, we, we talk about that. But the, let's let's instead of say what these governors think, let's say what the bond market thinks. The bond market has roughly three hikes priced into 2022. Now, if you look at the way that the curve is priced, exactly what you're asking me, when did the hikes come in? You roughly have you know a half a chance of a hike in March. That's when they end the taper. You have a full hike priced in sometime between May and the June meeting. So the, the bond market is thinking probably the hike happens in May, right? And then you have the second one kind of in the third quarter around September. And then you roughly have one either in December or the Fed. It actually bleeds into February just because the calendar in 2023. So the bond market's already there. So what, what you would see here is that the pricey, and when I say the bond market, that's talking about euro dollar futures. It's talking about roughly the two-year part of the curve that has this price in. So when you think about the market, uh, what how it's reacting to the Fed, it's already listened to Powell in congressional testimony. It, it did not reprice based on the FOMC meeting from two weeks ago, or is it a week ago now? Time time stands still at times, and time flies a lot in this uh, work remote environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look at what um, what the bond market has done, it's already been there. So what ha- happens from here is expectations relative to those numbers. Uh, I don't think the Fed hikes as soon as they're done with taper. I think they get the taper out of the way. 
they sit, they do a pause. So I think the pricing of that first hike, either May or June, makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. From there, I'm not completely sure. And I think what that's, and why I say that is because I think we get two hikes next year. I'm not convinced we get three because I think the Fed wants to slow play it. The question becomes, can they slow play it if inflation runs next year, let's say north of 4%. And unfortunately, we're seeing inflation next year have a four handle on it. Yeah, because it seems like inflation is is driving the ship right now, right? It is because, well, and just think about it. I mean, we did we did uh, massive monetary stimulus. We did massive fiscal stimulus. And so there is liquidity. We're awash in that. And there's been a change in taste and preferences. And so looking at the components of inflation, and let's just break it down to, you know, it's two main components, goods and services. Mm-hmm. So prior to the financial, I'm sorry, prior to the pandemic, from 2015 on until we had the pandemic, Goods inflation was essentially deflationary. It was negative. It's sometimes it, on a year over year, was slightly, it was at zero or slightly positive. It went slightly positive when we introduced the tariffs, uh, but in general, it had been deflationary. And you know, it, you, you may scratch your head at that and say, well, well, how's that the case? I went to the store and bought stuff. They didn't see how the prices went down. Some of it's hedonic adjustments and the quality of what you're buying. But effectively, there was no goods inflation. It was all driven by services. And so over the last, let, let's say prior to the pandemic, the last five or six years in, prior to that, you were seeing service inflation run around 3%. So that was driving the boat, okay? And the biggest driver within services is housing. Mm-hmm. Okay? Housing's not a good, it's a service. Uh, people forget that. And so it, it's a luxury, actually. It's a necessity, but it's a luxury too. So if you look at the service side of it, what you found is that bulk of that was driven by the housing market. So we call um, what we call just housing. It can be rent or the shelter component. Okay, and so when you look at the shelter component, there's something called rent and owner's equivalent rent. Those numbers right now are running. If you look at the the housing component, it's running in the mid to high threes. It's about three point seven percent is my recollection off the top of my head. Now, think about. What, what you've seen out there in the housing data, if you look at the Case-Shiller indices, look at the FHFA indices, you see that housing's up roughly 20% year over year. You look at the rent data, right? Asking rents, paid rents, uh, you're seeing that those are growing in the high single data. So there's a disconnect between what the inflation data is measuring in the housing market versus transaction data and what we all actually feel. And mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. One is these are surveys. Uh, asking people the question, what do you think you can rent your house for? And secondly, what you have is there's smoothing effects in there. So they don't just you know, use this data month over month. They try to smooth out some of the volatility. Why, do I, why am I belaboring this point? Well, if you think about it, is that the, inflate, it, it, the housing market should be at least 2x what you see inside of inflation today. It should be at least 6 or 7%, um, if not higher. And so what right. that means is that our, our service level inflation would be driven primarily by that. So what's gonna happen is that because this data series is gonna catch up and it's, it started to already, it's, it's moving in the right direction, um, it's going to keep pressure on inflation. And so even the transitory goods and things we talk about, durable goods, we, we saw durable goods orders strong today though. Um, they, were, they were pretty strong. It's probably what's causing a little bit of rate sell off today. 
But ultimately, what you're seeing is that th those things like autos and you know what people are complaining about, hotel prices, airline tickets for those that are flying, those are transitory. They will cure themselves mm -hmm. at some point in time, but the other side's going to pick up, right? The services component is going to pick up. And now right now, goods is running at about a 7% year-over-year rate, and services is running about 3%. So what we're going to get ultimately is – there's going to be a handoff from goods to services a little bit, but if goods stay elevated, because again, incomes are higher, savings rates appear to be higher, that people have this ability to consume. And also if you get wages and we keep goods elevated while services come in, there's a potential for inflation to run significantly hotter. And what that does is that, that kind of begets the idea of, of inflation because Inflation is a lot of times set with expectations. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy is that I think I'm going to get inflation. I see inflation. So I go out and spend to try to get in front of it, uh, especially when my savings account earns zero, right? Or maybe a right. basis point if you're lucky. So ultimately, it can feed into itself. Now, we don't think there's that price spiral today. We just think this is really this transition because uh, the services side needs to catch up, uh, specifically due to housing. And so we think that that continues to keep pressure on inflation next year. So what that means is we have something north of 4% in CPI. Um, and what that tells you is that the bond market offers you a negative real yield, right? And so when you look at it, you know, the Fed probably should be hiking in some capacity. Um, I just don't think that they can be aggressive because they know that they have risk of kind of derailing the, you know, the, the risk rally and everything we've seen for a while. So that's a long way of getting into it just to say, I think the Fed could has the potential to be a little more patient than what you see, but I don't uh -huh. think we're going back to old school 2% inflation for the next couple of years. And that's all going to depend upon the wage side of the equation. It's going to depend on you know the growth of the economy as well. But I definitely think that we're going to see above three for the next couple of years. Okay. Hey, Jeff, I want to I want to get one more thing from you before we kind of bring Bruce Kelly into this conversation. But uh, you mentioned bonds. Obviously, bonds are a big part of this whole equation. Uh, Double Line is in many ways known for its bond uh, portfolio management. What what do you do about bonds in this environment? I mean, whether against the backdrop of everything you just talked about or, yeah. or, or kind of even bigger picture. I mean, a lot of people and I've written stories about this. Um, financial advisors, which is our audience here, they they are having a hard time justifying bonds in portfolios right now. Right. No, and, and look, I started off by talking about inflation and real yields, right? And mm -hmm. so if you actually go back and look at it and you take the Fed, the, the Fed funds rate, and I'll get into your bond question, um, but if you take the Fed funds rate and subtract inflation, you have the most negative real yield of interest rate policy ever. Um, at least uh, at least in the, the time frame that we have data for. So since the existence of the Fed, uh, that says a lot, right? That, that's a pretty dang accommodative policy, right? Uh, but in general, what you're asking is, why do you own these things at all? They're mm -hmm. not going to protect my purchasing power. Well, there, there is one thing that bonds can help you do. They can help dampen volatility. It can also create volatility, as we've seen, right? You know, if, if we had this repriced in the bond market, it can create it. But the, the drawdown in, in bonds tends to be less than that of risk assets, right? So mm -hmm. it does give you a volatility dampener. Um, and I think that still holds. Now, can they be correlated positively? Absolutely. We had in the 90s that bonds and stocks were positively correlated. That is 
They went up together, they went down together, right? And so I think that if you start to see the positive correlation of bonds, it's both to the downside, but it's more from the standpoint of not fearing the bonds for what they do. They're there to provide kind of that stability in the overall portfolio. Now, there's another way to think about it. If you want to think about, okay, I need to generate a real yield. What I would say is that, okay, you can do, yeah, when I say a real yield, I mean a positive real yield. So I want to at least maintain my purchasing power. Well, if you, you go with my forecast where at double line, we're thinking that, you know, it's probably a four handle CPI next year. Where can I get that type of yield? There's not a lot of place in the market. You've got to go into the lower qualities of the below investment grade corporate bond market. Um, you can go into kind of the below investment grade uh, parts of the structured products market. You can go to emerging markets, uh, the, the below investment grade. Notice what I said, everything there, below investment grade. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with investing in below investment grade assets, but they're going to be riskier and they're going to be positive. They're going to have higher correlation to other risk assets, such as equities. So if someone's out there that's really thinking about the bond portfolio and wants to load up on high yield or wants to buy a lot of bank loans, which that's been kind of our preferred trade for the year of loans versus high yield. We still have that view for next year. We like the CLO market for that reason as well. Some floating rate because there is going to be uncertainty around the interest rate environment. So that floating rate we think has upside too, just because the coupons can get reset. But if you, if you look at those assets, they're going to be more positively correlated to the equity market. And if that's the case, then you shouldn't be using this for your bond bucket. It's more of the chicken's way of playing the equity market, right? So mm -hmm. if you're gonna if you're gonna have high allocations, they shouldn't be funded by that kind of ag Barclays ag or Bloomberg ag, I think it is now, um, or you know your treasury position. It should be thought of as part of your risk bucket, and so you can just scale it accordingly from that side. So I, I think that it's you know so that's one way. That's another way of doing it. I think more importantly too, if you want to own diversification, you you want to have a more that ballast on the former side I was talking about and more of a stability and you want to own credit, you need to own it everywhere. You want some investment grade, you want some below investment grade, you want to own some real estate. Um, you want to own uh, things that are like asset backs that, that have this correlation to real assets. Uh, you want to own emerging market debt. You want to own some non-US debt to play against the dollar. So I, I think that diversified basket of credit is a better play. And look, if, if something, you get some hiccups in risk markets, you have that ability to rebalance for, away from some of these assets. So as I look to, to 2022, you know, uh, we're not out there uh, delving down in the lowest credit qualities, uh, but we are running credit like on, on a balance of credit and rates. We have more tilts towards credit than rates. We're still underweight duration. We think that that's the right call. Um, we do think the front end of the curve continues to reprice as there's there's some Fed policy. And so I, I think what you're going to see is more of a parallel shift in the curve um, and maybe a potential steepening because some of the back end sells off a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. But I think we're going to have this gradual repricing upward of rates. So what that means is be, be somewhat cautious in the duration. Um, you've you've got to be active in this stuff. You've you got to be moving it around. And that's what we're trying to do and trying to plan for for next year. Bruce Kelly, do you have anything for Jeff? Yeah, Jeff, uh, uh, great stuff. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Jeff, uh, Benjamin kind of uh, slipped in what I was going to ask you about, you know, the strategy around this, if you're a financial advisor right now. I just wanted to follow up with you on that notion um, of bank loans. Yes. Um, and how do you, 
if you're a financial advisor and some guys, you know, take a packaged approach, they, they work with investnet and they just kind of use what investnet, um, manages when you say investnet, are you talking about the model, the kind of model portfolio? Yeah. Model portfolio or packaged okay. portfolio yep. or yep. turnkey asset management. Yeah. TAMPS. Yes. TAMPs great, great something. acronym. But then if you, but there's others who, who other advisors actively manage, right? And if you're looking at bank loans, what are some of the things you really got to be cautious of? Because I've written plenty of stories about bank loans, you know, kind of blowing up on people. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, bank, bank loans. What you, what's the yeah. cautious, what do you, how do you, how do you, how do you kick the tires on something like that? Yeah. So bank bank loans are, are kind of this this weird beast that they have some inherent issues with the settlement process. And so because they're not traditional, you know, security offerings, they take longer to settle. And so typically you'd see an advisor, you wouldn't be buying loans directly, right? It's like as a financial advisor, would you go no, out you go, and make use a, loan? a fund, right? You, you go to you're a gonna fund. use a fund, right? right. And because you're not going to go out and make a loan to a guy named Jeff Benjamin, right? That's not what advisors do. I mean, hey. he, he may be a triple A quality asset, but it, it's hard. You need someone. It needs to be DTC clear. There's a lot of stuff. So right. people buy funds. Now, the funds, there's two approaches. There's the index, like the ETF, and then there's right. the active managed approach. And so I, I would I would err on the side of, look, if you don't know what you're doing, just buy the index, right? If you want the exposure, it's the most liquid names, which means it's a little inefficient, right? It trades the highest name. So the more you, more debt you have, the bigger the weight inside of that. So th there's some kind of inherent issues with that um, uh, from a quality standpoint, but it's the most liquid stuff. Right. But that also means when there's a run, it's the most liquid, it gets hit a little bit harder. Right. So as long as you understand what you're using it for, that's fine. Now, if you want to get an edge, there are actively managed products out there. And those actively managed products you'll see have yield pickup. Right. And it's not just because they're dumpster diving, it's because they're more calculated and they trade around the index. And so we think the index in the bank loan market is extremely inefficient. However, it's better than not having exposure. So um, I, I think, you know, from the standpoint of the diligence, um, I think you got to understand the manager, their ability to, to traffic in the space. And there's a lot of good names out there uh, that could do that. And what can you capture if you're if you're looking for a little bit of yield? Like what is the spread over? A hundred. A hundred would be active versus right. an active fund versus a passive fund is roughly a hundred basis points today. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and in this world, that matters a lot. Yeah, it sure does. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, that you got to get out to almost the five-year part of the curve to get that, right? Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Hey, um, Jeff, speaking of a lot of these, you're talking funds and portfolio management, uh, I, I'm I know you're acutely aware of what's happening in the ETF space as we wrap up 2021, uh, closing in on a, a, a trillion dollars in uh, in uh, net inflows. Obviously, it's a record year by twice, I think, or by double. Yeah. Um, you know, what's your position? And Double Line is thought of as an active management shop. I mean, are are you guys feel like the the category is 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 kind of losing some steam, if not against the ropes? Well, I, you just said that it doubled in in, in inflows, so it doesn't sound like it's losing steam to no, me. No, uh, I'm talking about I'm talking about active management. Oh, ETF active management. Load. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, if you notice too, and you you read the headlines that there there's the a new wave of actively managed ETFs that have been launched and uh -huh. are being launched too, and I think the ETF wrapper is becoming more widely accepted, um, and you're going to see much more in the active space there. So I think there is this 
natural transition out there where mm-hmm. um, you're going to see more and more active ETFs because I, I mean, like I'm biased. I work in the active business. I don't believe in completely efficient markets or I wouldn't be uh, on the active side of the business. Um, and so I, I just think it's a wrapper. And I, I think that advisors like it. They like intraday liquidity. There mm-hmm. are some challenges with the active models, but it works. I mean, we, we sub-advise some, some uh, actively managed ETFs uh, with State Street uh, that we've been doing for a while. You may see us in the ETF business in 22. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, in general that I think it's getting more adoption, the wrapper. And therefore, I think that you're going to start to see more prevalence of active management within there. And so you've seen some of the major players in the mutual fund business get in to the active ETF space. Some have done conversions and some right. are just doing pure launches. Right. So I, I don't think active is dead. Uh, I just think you need some differentiation out there. And obviously, fixed income is very, uh, very well uh, suited for active management. And ultimately, advisors like active management within the fixed income space. So I I expect to see significant more innovation there. And um, as the the rules have gotten much easier to get on, to to launch an ETF, to be out there and, and really run more strategies, because that there's been a very tight guardrails on the active side, especially in fixed income. And they're they're getting broadened and broadened out as there's more acceptance. So I do think you're going to see more prevalence there of, of fixed income, active fixed income in the next mm-hmm. three to five years. Well, yeah, a good point that you made there that active fixed income is an area of, of continued growth and net flows um, of the, of the, I think 330 billion in net outflows from mutual funds, this active mutual funds this year, it was all on the equity side. Um, you you mentioned something there, uh, Jeff, you might've slipped it in, but, uh, I was going to ask you about that double line getting into the ETF space. How would uh, double line likely do that? Launching an ETF, converting a mutual fund? Yeah, I've got to be very careful here from a compliance standpoint, but <laughs> I figured that. Um, yeah, we have filings out there, so I'm not privileged to talk about okay. it. But if you if you search on those words, uh, you can probably find out that uh, we have something in the works. Okay. Making a little news here. Yeah. 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 I mean, breaking, breaking. You heard it here first from me. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, you know, if you take a look out there, uh, you can see that. But I, I've got to be very careful from a compliance standpoint. We can't talk about what they look like. So, 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 Jeff, what do you think about the e, what's happening in the ESG space right now? This is an area that's been white hot. Uh, flows going into it at record numbers. Uh, I don't know where Double Line is on that, but um, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the category. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, there, there's always good intentions with this stuff. And then then there's the marketing machine, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, do you want to have a better environment? Yes. Do you want to have a better social structure? Yes. Do you want to invest in companies that have strong governance? Yes. So I check the box on that acronym. Everybody wants something like that. Um, however, you know, there is some, you know, what they call greenwashing in the space where because it's been a white hot, uh, se- uh, segment of the market, and if you just slap the name on it, you can get flows. There's there's some kind of I, I won't call them bad actors, but people who are a little more disingenuous. The other problem we have with ESG as a as an investment business is that there's no standardization, right? There's people who approach ESG from the inclusive standpoint. We will only invest in companies that do E S and G, and there's people who are exclusionary and say, well, we kick them out if they don't do the screen. And then you have the middle where it's like, 
well, we want the best of the non uh, of the polluters that are trying to go in the right direction. So it, it, there's a lot of uncertainty around it um, and what it really means. And so it, it's kind of like, you know, Jeff, you and I talked uh, a few years ago, like I think you said it was seven years ago when we were chatting earlier about smart beta. And right. It's another ubiquitous phrase, smart beta. But what does it mean? You know, there are some definitions out there. It's things that are not market cap weighted. They tend to be systematic or rules based. But just because I have a smart beta fund, you don't know what that is. I could be doing smart beta in small cap equity. I could be doing it in commodities. I could be doing it in fixed income, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same with ESG. It's it, it has this ubiquity uh, that everybody knows what it is, but then you don't know what it is under the surface. So look, at the end of the day, we want to do what investors are looking for. So we've been working on our policies here. We've we've formulated a policy, but we don't have an ESG product, and we don't have a product out there because. One, you know, we just don't we just don't want to have this idea that people only buy it for that. We'd rather incorporate it throughout the whole process. And so uh -huh. because we span, you know, uh, many different markets, it's been more challenging for us to get it into the investment process. So we've been working on that in 21. Um, you know, we're we're trying to you know get to where we can have some consistency because how you trade emerging market corporates versus trading, you know, U.S. corporates versus how does one treat a residential mortgage-backed security? Uh, what do you do with loans, you know, CLOs? Do you look at the underlying? Is it the manager too? So what we've been trying to do in some of our working groups is figure out a consistent way to be intellectually honest about what we're doing and have a system that tracks it. So we we we're, we have it into our process, but the way we think about it to date thus far you know, is, is a very high level is, does ESG pose a massive risk to this company? That is, do they have these certain risks out there? And if so, are you being compensated for it? Because at the end of the day, if we all pile into ESG, um, you know, it, it, will it will strip capital away from the, the ones who are not friendly. But also what that means, if you're stripping capital, there's a new premium. So I did notice that I did not notice, but I read yesterday that there was a new ETF coming out and it has a phenomenal ticker because um, it's called BAD, B-A-D, yeah. <laughs> and it is anti-ESG. Right. And, I, you know, it's kind of like the, the sin stocks, right? The gambling, the pornographers, the tobacco companies, the alcohol companies, when all these people were going away from those stocks. They created these SIN funds, and the SIN funds typically, especially on a risk-adjusted basis, did better. So again, I'm not here to say you should trade against ESG. I'm saying, what are you hiring us as a manager to do? Are you hiring us to change the world? Um, and if so, we'll, we we're trying to incorporate that. We all want to we all want to breathe well. You know, we we want to make sure that our trees are around. We we want to have water. I live in Southern California, by the way. Right. So, you know, all these things, they they resonate with us. But is that our mandate in the IMA? So we still have these these kind of interest. We're still trying to digest all of what it means. And it's a very wishy washy topic. And so that's right. not a popular opinion to have. And, you know, it's something that if we do it, we want to do it right. And so what we've been working on is getting it into the process, but it being more of a risk factor than necessarily like, Oh my gosh, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Okay, well, and just an FYI, I wrote about that bad ETF yesterday, and I'd like to think that you've read that on investmentnews.com. That's probably where that. I grabbed it, Jeff. So, okay. um, you know, so, you know, I always go there first thing in the morning. So it, it likely is that. But I right. mean, and I sent it to my, my team members, and 
they were like, oh, it's just such a great ticker, right? And so <laughs> yeah. I think 95% of marketing in, in the ETF world sometimes comes down to the ticker. Well, my biggest response was, I can't believe that ticker was still available. I know? know. And then I had that Michael Jackson song in my head for the next hour. <laughs> You know? Well, the, the the last thing I want to ask you about, and then we'll see if Bruce has anything else, is uh, I was going to ask you about the Build Back Better thing, but when this podcast drops on January 3rd, that might be a totally different news story. So what I want you to grade Joe Biden and the Biden administration in, uh, in, a, in the first mostly a full year. Uh, well, it's not an A and it's not an F, and so um, it's probably somewhere in the middle. And so I, I think that there, there's well-heeled intentions here with the administration, but uh, I think just you can't solve everything by just throwing money at it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of folks are, are worried about 22, that if we don't have more fiscal stimulus, that the economy can't support itself. And I have a lot of sympathy to that argument. Uh, because if you look at what we, what we ended up doing in fiscal stimulus and, and increasing the deficit, it was greater than the amount of GDP that we've actually received from it. So that means the money multiplier is less than one. And without the stimulus, we wouldn't have grown. But the question is, are, are we in a decent place to grow without that stimulus? So there's something that people look at, like macroeconomists things, that, that's called the credit impulse. And when I talk about a credit impulse, it's talking about the change in the expansion of credit. And if you look at the impulse from the fiscal stimuli uh, that were out there, the bulk of that has already happened, right? So the impulse is there. We've already seen the base effects roll off. Now, the one thing that hasn't rolled off completely were the extraordinary unemployment benefits, but the CARES Act has effectively rolled off, right? Uh, what you saw in all of the, the, the various programs to get things back up and running, like the PPP and all of that that, that we did to, to keep the economy going after we shut it down, those effects have already rolled off on a year-over-year -year basis. Uh -huh. So the, the, we actually have a negative drag from it already. Um, and that's what I think that some people miss. So if you tack on another program that, let's just say, you know, is it, somewhat effective, because we know with every government program, it, you know, it gets about half the benefit and takes twice the cost, right? So you get a fourth of what you were <laughs> promised, right? Um, and so... You know, I, you know, if we can get something done, and I think with Manchin, you know, the, the headlines when we started this week uh, were that, you know, the deal was dead over the weekend, uh, that nothing was going to happen. Then kind of the truth came out a little bit more that, oh, it's on hold. They, they, you know, Manchin wants the number down about a quarter of a trillion dollars. It's nothing amongst friends, right? Um, so I still think there's the potential to do it. Uh, but the longer they wait, the more dangerous it is because you get closer to midterms. Right. So don't forget it's a political game. So I think the administration's done an okay job. I, I don't think there's anything great to write home about um, at this point. But ultimately, just throwing money, you know, trillions after trillions isn't going to get it done either. So we have an infrastructure package. Let's see how some of that money gets spent. But I still think the more important aspect is the private market. So we had talked about real yields. If you are a corporation today and you can go borrow in the corporate bond market, Heck, you can borrow in the low market, you borrow in the short in the curve. You, you know, let's say you're borrowing at five years and inflation runs at 3% over five years. Your cost of capital is less than the rate of inflation, right? So that means that it's very accretive for companies to go out and borrow money. And guess what they can do with that money? You could get, you can pay back your shareholders, right? You can do mm -hmm. stock buybacks, you can give out dividends. You can also acquire people. 
All right, you can do M&A. You can do CapEx. We've seen a big wave of CapEx this year uh, in the second half of this year that we hadn't seen in a long period of time as well. So because of that negative real yield environment, there are other things that are creative outside the fiscal authority. So um, I think the, 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 the thing is, is it has to play nice with what's going on at the Fed. Um, and the political climate is now when you see, you know, members of Congress talk, they say, well, it's because we gave out free money. That's why we have inflation. And look, we gave out a lot of money, but we also shut down the economy. So I, I, I'm, I'm challenged to know what the administration can do, any administration, because it's just rife with conflict. And so, I, you know, I think that Joe Biden, I think the Democrats have a very tough time in midterms just because in general, I think this is this is a world that's anybody but incumbent. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's it's we're just going to keep rotating the parties in power um, because we're all dissatisfied with everything going on. So uh, it's probably a little multi-layered than what you were looking for there. But, you know, we do need some targeted fiscal uh, concepts. But at the end of the day, what's going to drive the economy is people working. And uh -huh. we know we have five million fewer people working. A lot of that, as we've done work on the demographics and looking through it, are just early retirements. It's that older age cohort I don't think comes back. So we've seen an increase in productivity, right? Uh, because we have fewer workers and we have more GDP, more GDP per capita for working people, therefore higher productivity. Um, but the challenge we have, if, if you just look at what came out in the census data, we had the lowest birth rates we've had on record, right? In terms of percentage of growth. I think it was like, we grew at like 10 basis points uh, mm -hmm. year over year in terms of population. So that's gonna be a little inherent drag. But ultimately, the private sector is what drives the economy, right? And that's why everybody wants to say, you know, let private, the private sector do what it needs to do because we're the job creators, right? We're the ones that, that pay the wages, and we try to deploy capital in the most efficient way where we think it's going to work out the best. And so uh, the private sector, I think, is going to continue to drive and innovate here. And so hopefully we can do that transference. We had the government safety net in 2020. Uh, it extended out some more in 21. Um, and, you know, we really don't need the safety net right now. Why not let's just save it? Um, it's very apropos. It is a rainy day here in Los Angeles. So save it for a rainy day. Really good stuff. Bruce, uh, anything else for, uh, for Mr. Sherman? Uh, no, all, uh, all good. Well, hey, Jeff, really good stuff. Thanks for, for taking the time on this uh, rainy day in December for you. It's sunny where I am, and it's <laughs> always sunny where Bruce is. So uh, so thank you very much for taking the time. I'm sure we're going to try and get you on here again uh, to, to pick your brain on on more of these. We'll come of back topics. and talk about inflation and see what happens. When yeah, the, let's see. You, know, you can tell the, me how wrong we were one way or the other. It's going to be a lot when the Fed higher hikes than we think, or something. maybe a lot lower yeah. than we think. So yeah. we're going to have to see. But as always, uh, Jeff and Bruce, it's a pleasure chatting with the two of you. And uh, keep up the good work you guys are doing at uh, Investment News. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, that was some good stuff from Jeff Sherman from Double Line. Got a good outlook for uh, what to look for in 2022. Now we're going to talk amongst ourselves, as they say, bringing on uh, our Washington correspondent, Mark Sheff, to enlighten us on what he sees uh, ahead for 2022 and beyond. Uh, Bruce, what do we got going on here? Well, I think we had to write prediction stories or outlook stories for the newspaper, right? For 2022, which should be coming out. I think they're going to be posted on the website this week, the first week of January. 
uh, one or two a day and then appear in the newspaper um, the second week of January. You had to do one of those, Jeff, right? Always. I think I did one, even though <laughs> the timing of all this is so crazy. I'm having trouble keeping everything straight. And I know that our man in Washington, uh, the, the, the Purdue Boilermaker himself, uh, Mark Sheff Jr., um, always has insights and predictions. Um, so I thought, you know, we would talk to Mark about Washington, maybe you about RAs or markets, and me about um, kind of the brokerage industry, if you will. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. We love having you on, as always, and Happy New Year, my friend. Thank you, Bruce and Jeff. It's always good to be here. Happy New Year to each of you. What kind of, um, when you were doing your outlook story for 2022, Mark, what were some of the one or two things that you keyed on for Washington and for broadly or for the financial advice industry more specifically? 2021 was a crazy year. I don't think you could have predicted a, 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 a riot at the U.S. Capitol <laughs> to start the year. I don't think anyone had that in their on their uh, bingo card or their Ouija board or whatever the expression is. And, um, you know, it's been a new administration, changes right. in the SEC. You've been doing a ton of your great reporting all year long. What do you, what do you think for 2022, my friend? Well, first of all, I'm glad that I didn't file my Outlook story too early. I, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I was, I was a little bit worried that um, our executive editor, Paul Curcio, would uh, start losing patience with me on it. But it turns out that um, Elad Roisman, a Republican SEC commissioner, announced on December 20th, Monday, December 20th, that he is uh, resigning from the SEC by the end of January. And if I had filed my Outlook story, I would have had to rewrite the lead and restructure the top of it anyway. So I'm, I'm glad I waited. And that gets me into what I, what I wrote it, about. Why is he quitting? Well, he didn't explain it in his, uh, his statement. However, it, it's not hard to extrapolate from what he said and, and, and look at his uh, frustrations his and Republican Commissioner Hester Peirce's frustrations over the uh, last few months as Gary Gensler has has led the agency and taken over its helm. Uh, Gensler was appointed by President Biden and, um, and, and his uh, confirmation meant that the SEC now has a 3-2 Democratic majority. And this Democratic majority is pursuing an aggressive agenda that is far different from the agenda that um, the uh, two Republican commissioners and Jay Clayton, when they were in the majority, pursued during the, the, the Trump administration. So Roisman and, and Peirce are, are um, wary of, of ESG disclosure regulations that are on the SEC agenda. They're upset that the Gensler SEC is going to go back and redo um, uh, rules about um, opening private markets um, more so to ordinary investors. They're going to take another look at the accredited investor definition, even though uh, the Trump the Trump SEC approved reform of 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 that uh, rule. Uh, as a source told me, uh, Roisman probably just he, he feels he's done his duty after three years and doesn't want to revisit 
a bunch of uh, rules that he thought had been uh, had been settled. So what we have here is a uh, tangible is tangible evidence of, of political tension on the on the um, SEC. We were getting a sense of that that tension based on statements that uh, Person Royceman put out about ESG, a joint statement they put out criticizing Gensler's expansive agenda, expansive updated agenda uh, that was released in the middle of December. Expansive agenda, did they yeah, use well, that phrase? It, it goes on and on. We can, we can get into that more during <laughs> right. our discussion. So what but, does that all mean though for, you know, if I'm a financial advisor and I'm trying to sell a private placement or I'm trying to use more ESG in my clients' portfolios or, or just consider it, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. how does that all boil down to me? You know, if I if I'm that financial advisor sitting in Topeka or someplace, yes, or Fort Wayne, Indiana, my hometown. Exactly. Um, well, it, what it means depends on the issue because with a Democratic led led SEC, your ability to sell uh, private placements is is probably going to be. If not restricted, there there are going to be more investor protections attached to it. If this SEC gets through that rulemaking, right, right, okay. But on ESG, that's, that's something Jeff and I and other people we've had guests on, and we talked about that. You know, expansion of alternative expansion of private placement. Right, we've talked about that plenty. So, but on the other hand, if you if you are um, an advocate of ESG of using ESG factors to select investments. And if you're a fan of, fan of ESG funds, then the SEC and the DOL are, are going to make it uh, e easier. Um, they're, they're going to, to um, enhance your ability to do that. And also on the SEC's regulatory agenda are um, disclosure uh, proposals for disclosure requirements for public companies regarding climate change, human capital management, and board diversity. At the DOL, they have a, a, an ESG regulation that's, that's already been a proposal that's already been put out and the comment deadline ended in December. That proposal encourages plan, retirement plan fiduciaries to use ESG factors to select investments. It also clarifies that ESG funds can be used as default investments. Uh, for retirement plans and, for instance, um, in target date funds. So basically, if you're an advisor and you uh, uh, either uh, want to do things that, that um, are, are supported by Democrats in the Biden administration, you're good in good shape. If you want to uh, do, do some things that the Republicans favor, you might have to wait until at least 2025 for an SEC that... Uh, is on your side of the net. Yeah, this would seem pretty uh, standard stuff for a Democratic administration, wouldn't it? It is, and, and, and look, I've made this point in, in uh, columns, and I believe here on your show, and I'll make it again. Regulation is inherently political. Regu regulatory choices are political choices. There's no such thing as, <laughs> um, uh, uh, po politics-free regulation. It just doesn't work that way. Now, that doesn't mean that Republicans or Democrats uh, are, are more or less interested in, in, invest, in investor protection, but it does mean that they approach it in very different ways. And that's why you have this change of direction. 
when the SEC changes the majority. It's just that this, this most recent change of direction has been especially stark and has brought with it more tension than I've seen on the commission uh, in my 11 and a half years covering it. So Jay Clayton is not going to be the next uh, uh, head of the Southern District uh, for the for the <laughs> not in, a Democratic the administration in, in, in New York. Is that a prediction you're making? <laughs> no, that's too that's that's a layup. I, I I didn't make that prediction. That's that's just a, a fact of uh, natural fact there. Okay, someone's not getting their dream job then in 2022. It's Jay Clayton, um, <laughs> right? Jeff, do you have any questions for uh, uh, Mr. Chef, or do you have any predictions for uh, yourself for 2022? Well, the only, not really a question for Sheffy, but uh, it, it seems like, you know, tension at, political tension at the SEC is, is kind of a given. And I know you're saying it's more so now, but it seems like, you know, as somebody who follows your work, Mark, it seems like that's, that's kind of the rule. It, it is, but but it, it's just it's extraordinary. Royceman and, and Purse put out this this statement criticizing Gensler's uh, regulatory agenda. I, I just that doesn't happen. I, that right, doesn't. Right. There may be grumbling behind closed doors from mm -hmm. from the minority commissioners, but I I can't recall seeing anything like that. So not they looked not at the agenda. Statements. They looked at the agenda and said basically Gensler is going to go off the rails. I mean, you're reading between the lines. Right. So what happens to that, that seat that's being vacated? Oh, well, it, it, who knows how long it'll be open. Uh, the, um, the way it works is uh, Senate Republicans will, will choose the next nominee. I mean, uh -huh. they'll, they'll recommend the nominee and the Biden administration will put that Republican nominee forward. So then uh, the, the question is, uh, when will that nomination be made? How long will it take for that nominee to be vetted? When will the nominee get a hearing before the Senate Banking Committee? And after all those steps, the nominee will finally get a confirmation vote on the Senate floor. That nominee will probably be coupled with Democratic nominees on other commissions and bodies so that they can go through as a bipartisan package. That's the way it usually works. Hard to know how long it will, um, how long it will take, but as a practical matter, Reisman's departure means that the SEC will be putting out rule proposals on ESG disclosures, for instance, by 3-1 votes instead of 3-2 votes. Uh, th this, this commission is going to have to do a lot of work by 3-2 votes uh, or 3-1 votes, depending on how many Republicans there are. Uh -huh. And what it means, one thing that it means, that for, first of all, if, if a rule is going to be challenged in court, it's always better to have 5-0 consensus. consensus. The other thing is, if, if a bunch of three, two or three, one rules go through, the next administration can revisit them and maybe have a better, you know, a stronger argument for going back and ripping it up and starting over again. So th this idea of, of passing um, uh, regulations by partisan votes has, has, some, um, has some implications. But the bottom line is the SEC uh, chair gets his or her way depending on on uh, how what kind of stomach he or she has well, when is the vote. last time there's been a 5-0 vote well days? as a matter of fact in the last rulemaking uh package the most recent on december 15th i believe it was there were uh five um four out of five rules were three two but then that other one was 5-0 5-0 is not 
uh, it's not as if it's it's gone into the dustbin of history. It's just uh -huh. that five zero on anything um, um, on anything uh, uh, um, controversial will not happen. I mean, if five zero on anything that that um, makes a big change, and there's not going to be a five zero vote on anything that makes a big change, like requiring uh, all public companies to do climate risk uh, disclosures. So what was a 5-0 vote on who brings napkins to the holiday party or something? You know, it was about, uh, I believe, an insider. It was on a, a rule that um, I don't follow closely because it doesn't directly impact our readers. I believe it was on an insider trading um, regulation, I believe. It wasn't Nancy Pelosi, anyway. was it? <laughs> not on her portfolio. They weren't talking about her portfolio, were they? <laughs> no, 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 I'm afraid, afraid not. The, the other thing that's interesting about the uh, Democratic majority on the SEC is that it means that um, progressive groups have better traction there. So uh, uh, groups like PIABA, the Public Investors Arbitration Bar, so, mm -hmm. no, the Public Investors Advocate Bar Association. Yeah, new name there. New name. Uh, Piaba um, uh, over the summer was celebrating that that the Gensler SEC sent an exp a FINRA expungement proposal back to FINRA. Uh, Piaba argued that it wasn't it wasn't tough enough on reforming expungement. They said, "Hey, the SEC listened to us." I mean, the, the president of Piaba at the time said that. I quoted him in his story. And um, the North American Securities Administrators Association, the umbrella group for state regulators, their uh, policy agenda is, is, is quite similar in some ways to the SECs under Gensler. And so the state regulators are probably going to get more traction at the SEC as well. And, and th these are dynamics that are sort of going on maybe under the radar a little bit. All right. I also have a congressional prediction before we go. Yes, please. Give okay. It. All right. Bring it. Okay. The Republicans, I can predict your prediction now. <laughs> well, but, well, hold on. But let me let me tell our, our listeners. All right. Uh, Republicans will take over the House, but the, the Democrats will increase their majority in the Senate. Wrong. You heard it here first. <laughs> As because, McLaughlin would say, wrong. <laughs> because Republicans aren't getting their best. Um, they're having trouble getting their best candidates to jump in. I, I think Democrats are going to do better than everyone thinks in the Senate. That'll be interesting to watch, and we'll know soon, and we'll get you back on here uh, yeah. after the election and say, Mark, you're either a, a swami in the swamp or uh, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. We'll figure it out. All right. All right. Jeff, how about you, man? Uh, you got any deep thoughts for 2022? You know, I, deep thoughts are, are, you know, like you and like Mark, we've written about these things in, in recent weeks, kind of looking at the year ahead. And, you know, the things that I cover, I just see the trends are already in place and I don't see disruptions like flows into ETFs, flows into ETFs hit a record, as we talked about with the previous guest, uh, yes. hit, hit, hit a record uh, with net flows. And they're, I just don't know what derails that. I, I don't know. I think the, the mutual fund industry has, they're kind of losing their grip on this thing. And, and even though they've got a ton of inertia and they make, they make a lot of money by just, you know, keep managing those funds and they'll do sure. it until, until they can't anymore. But the money's moving to ETFs, the money's moving passive and the money's moving to ETFs. Now, if we have some market. And those are all thinner margin prod, uh, products. Right. right. Um, 
and and the you know if we have some market disruption some serious market disruption that does play well for active management but active management is even finding its way into the ETF space which was historically known for passive index strategy so that's one thing I, I don't know what disrupts that and I'm not some kind of genius for for calling that because everybody sees it it's right there in your face um, the other thing that I write a lot about is the uh, consolidation in the RIA space. The acquisitions just keep getting bigger and bigger. It's like a, it's like the housing bubble of two. This year was amazing, right? I yeah. mean, this year you couldn't open up because we don't go to the office anymore. And you, mm -hmm. in our, our history, you never have. You, <laughs> you stopped right. going to the office a long time ago. You used to go to the office in Boston, but then you yeah. moved to Michigan after that, right? Right. So, but you know, you can't open your laptop anymore to begin work at, at investment news without getting two, three, four announcements of RIA deals pop and, up. And big right. ones. And they're getting bigger. bigger. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of the thing that I... Do we see a know, mega I, acquisition this year? Well, that's you know, the thing. Does, does a I focus financial buy another right. network or something or, it's, or what? It's not really, it's not really, you know, you know, these calendar year predictions there's no reason that this would happen in 22 as opposed to 21 or 23 right. but i think we're heading to the point where we're going to start seeing or at least see an aggregator a major consolidator by a consolidator and then that's gonna and then the floodgates are open at least you know until the they run out of those but the small deals which we call small deals now like you know a $500 million, a $750 million right. RIA being acquired, that's now a small deal that's for peanuts. some reason. But I would not be surprised to see one of the, these are, these aggregators are getting very aggressive and they're, they're hungry. They got deep pockets, a lot of money's cheap. private equity. Financing's cheap. Yeah. Right. So I, like I said, my, my money's on, on uh, CI financial, that operation out of Canada that seems to want to take over the United States. Um, it, I would not be surprised to see them buy something giant, right? But you know, that's just a that's just what it looks like. Who knows? We could just continue to see another year more of the same. I don't see RNA our MA activity in the RIA space slowing down. That's no, definitely not in this market, but and it's it's it, so stay tuned for that one, yeah. Um, and now it's uh, uh my turn. I just think. Uh, you know, we cover, you know, the independent BDs where people already work in their own offices and work from home. But I think on the other side of the employee side, where you have to go to an office or a branch, mm -hmm. like a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill Lynch, I just think those brokers are never going to go back to the office full time. Man. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Um, that's so that's my prediction. I think you know, it's just going to get harder and harder to get people to come back to the office. And then that creates, um, Mark, right? And a regulatory issue with FINRA and oversight at the branch, because you have to have a branch manager overseeing people and FINRA doesn't like you to do that remotely. They like you to do that face-to-face -to, -face to a certain degree. But uh, FINRA, FINRA has extended it's uh, regulatory relief for remote inspections uh, into 2022 and, um, and is considering making uh, remote uh, inspections of uh, per allowing remote inspections permanently. 
this is an issue that the industry is pushing hard. Right. Uh, SIFMA, the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, and others really want uh, uh, FINRA to allow remote inspections all the time. That means um, why go back to work? Why go back to the office rather, right? Mm-hmm. If you right. can do so, all your meetings with your clients at Starbucks and, you know, <laughs> and your patio, you know, why... <laughs> Why have a branch office? And we were talking, Jeff, right? We were talking about that um, in our meeting the other day, like all this real estate is going to be empty. Um, well, it already is empty. It's just it's not empty. It's, it's going to remain empty. Sold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would add that to my, my predictions for 2022 is that FINRA will, uh, will make some kind of proposal to at least extend remote in- inspections, if not make them a, a permanent, if not give it a permanent okay. So the second half of that prediction is, if I'm a, a broker and advisor with a big firm, a Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Merrill Lynch, and I get paid 40 cents on the dollar or 45 cents on the dollar, and I'm working at home and I'm being remotely supervised, why, and I'm, I'm an employee, but my, the guy across the street from me is registered with LPL as an independent contractor, and he gets paid anywhere from 60 to 80 cents on the dollar, right? So if you're making 500 grand a year, you know, if you're generating that in revenue or taking that home in revenue or as your net income, you could add 100 or 200,000 or more in net income if you become an independent contractor, right? So I got to think if you're an advisor who is at a big firm who's working at home already, and then the firm says, okay, you can be remotely supervised. Why would you give them 60 cents? Why would you want to turn over 60 cents on every dollar of revenue that you generate? Right? So I just think it's going to create more people looking at dynasty financial, Jeff, right? And other, you know, avenues to become your own, you know, uh, RIA in a way or independent. Yeah, and that, the obvious, that's another one that, you know, it's, it's right there in your face. It's, it's moving in that direction. That's a good point, Bruce, that that's a, that could be another brick in the wall there. I mean, it's, it's very, these guys don't like to make that move, that transition. They feel very comfortable at a big institution and that's very understandable, but it's just, and that's all psychology. And we all, you know, <laughs> like to be set in our ways. Uh, some more than others, of course, but, uh, you know, it just seems that this is another, it's when you look at the math and you look at the amount of money that you're paying as a wirehouse broker back to the firm, Mm -hmm. um, and you're out there, you know, generating your own leads and getting your own clients and everything, it's got to make you think that you could, the grass might be greener in in another um, business setup. So that's my that's my thinking uh, for uh, 2022, gentlemen. Any any other final thoughts here? I am tired of COVID. Hope that goes away. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done with it. I want to start traveling again. Yes, people in person. Uh, I hope that happens yeah. next year or this year. This this podcast drops on January 3rd, so I hope that happens. 2022. Here we come. And speaking of that, Jeff, uh, good news for you that it does drop, drop on January 3rd because the NFL playoffs will not have begun, and that means the Patriots won't have been eliminated 
uh, ruining one of your predictions Burn. Uh, for 2022, and that is the Patriots to win the Super Bowl, and that's just not going to happen. Yeah, that's well, that's my prediction. So, you know, I don't know what to tell you, Mark, because I got to stick with it. I, I just feel like if you if you if you break it all down, you, you got to lean on coaching this year. Uh, when you break it all down, you lean on the quarterback, and I don't think Mac Jones is a Super Bowl winning quarterback yet. He will be one day, but not this year. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the Jets aren't going to win the Super Bowl either. <laughs> Ooh, gutsy move. Who you, so who you got, uh, Mark? Your, your newly well, uh, adopted Green Bay Packers? Absolutely. I my my wife grew up in Green Bay. I'm a I'm a oh nice. I'm a Packer fan via osmosis. Actually, I'm I'm a I'm I'm even more than that. I'm a I'm a an enthusiastic and uh, uh, committed Packer fan now. Uh, I, what a great organization. Uh, when I, um, I, I went, I took a, a tour of the, the Packer Hall of Fame and, and Lambeau Bow Field the day after I saw my first game at Lambeau. And I'll tell you that, that weekend is what really cinched it for me. I was there with my wife and um, uh, mother-in-law and, and a friend of the, the family. And uh, I, I've, I've been a um, diehard Packer fan ever since. That's great. All right. All right. Well, on that note, Bruce. Gentlemen, thank you for your 2022 predictions, thoughts, and outlooks. Once again, we want to say Happy New Year to everybody. Um, let's uh, all have a healthy and prosperous 2022. And if it's Monday, it's time for another Investment News podcast. We want to thank our special guests, Jeff Sherman and Mark Sheff Jr. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. You can find the Investment News Podcast at investmentnews.com. Also on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff on Twitter via at Benji Ryder. Uh, tell him about his uh, New England Patriots or RA predictions. And me, you can reach via uh, my handle at VD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.